Welcome to WWDMD, a podcast that is all about peeling back the curtain on what clinicians really think and feel as they work with others. My guests, clinicians, who are also sometimes clients themselves, risk their vulnerability as they publicly share their emotional reactions to their clients, disclose their challenges in doing the work, and reveal their personal backgrounds. I'm Dr. Myers. I'm a psychotherapist in New York City with 30 years of practice experience specializing in anxiety and depressive disorders, as well as sibling relationships and family systems. I'm also a professor of social work at Malloy University on Long Island. I see this as a journey of self-reflection for not only our guests, but you, because with each episode, I'm hopeful that you will learn something new about yourself. Please note that any discussion of case details have been modified to protect the privacy of our clients. What would Dr. Myers do? Hey, everyone. So, As you know by now, uh, on this podcast, I have created a series on sibling abuse, a topic that I feel is very important that remains under the radar, and I think that it's uh, extremely important to bring awareness of this, not just to mental health professionals, but to everyone out there, so that those who have experienced this in childhood and or adolescence, and maybe even into adulthood, uh, know that you're not alone and to understand um, how this differs from sibling rivalry, what the enduring impact is, what the risk and protective factors. And with this information, perhaps we are better armed to prevent this from happening uh, for others, to validate those experiences for those who have been the target of this kind of abuse uh, within the family environment and how to treat it once we're aware of all of these things. So I um, put out a request to those who may have been victims of sibling abuse and were willing to share their stories on the podcast. So as I continue with this series, I'm now moving into wanting to serve this, uh, use this as a platform for others to tell their stories. And Today, I am with the very brave and courageous Lori Saylor Gallus, who rose to the call. She is the first person I'm going to be speaking with who experienced sexual abuse by her brother during her formative years uh, between the ages of 10 and 14. And I'm just going to let her tell her story, but let me just introduce her as a retired accountant, as a mom of five and a grandmother of nine. And uh, as I said, of somebody who's extremely brave and courageous in publicly sharing her story. And as she said to me before I hit the record button, no more secrets. So welcome, Lori, and thanks for being here. And I'm just going to turn it over to you. Okay. Oh, well, uh, to be, I guess I'll start at the beginning. Um, the first actual vivid memory I have of him approaching me was in my parents' bedroom. I'm not sure how that came about. They were gone, I guess. And he, I must, can't remember exactly, but about 10 or 11. And he had gotten my bottoms off and was using his finger to penetrate me. And he kept telling me, 
you know, I said, oh, it hurts. He, he'd say, he'd hold me down with the other arm and say, oh, it'll only be a minute. You know, and this was everything he did to me. He physically hurt me too. And it was always, oh, it'll only hurt a minute. I don't remember how that situation ended, but as the years went by, that's what things would be, you know, oh, it'll only hurt a minute. But when he actually started forcing me to have intercourse with him, he would threaten me with hurting me or he'd tell my parents something. I'm going to tell on you, whether it was real or made up. And so I was just afraid all the time. And sometimes we'd be up in the barn loft. I can remember there was a metal feed container that we'd climb up in and stand up. And that would be probably oral in there. But I do remember my little sister, who was five years younger than I was, being there. So she was observing it, watching it. So that still had to have an effect. But apparently he did do something with her because she told our older sister just recently. Which just breaks my heart because she's had issues in her life, too, with partners. and. It makes it so hard because this kind of thing affects your entire life. It doesn't end when the when the abuse ends, and it really never ended. The sexual abuse continued till I was fourteen, and then my period came, and so it threatened pregnancy, and he didn't like to use condoms, so they weren't comfortable, and so at that point. He would have been 17, so he was obviously having sex with other people if he knew that he didn't like condoms. So sex wasn't the only way he abused me. He liked to use physical and, um, you know, like to control every little thing. And he'd always pick at me and physically hurt me. He'd get me in trouble and tell them things that, tell my parents things that, I never did, but they believed him for some reason. And I think part of it was I wasn't a very happy person to get along with. And I never tied that to this until I went into therapy and that was something that was brought up. Um, I do remember the day he showed me how to shoot a shotgun. And this was abuse, totally. He had me press my shoulder up against a building. He says, oh, this will help support it. That way, you know, it, it won't be so bad. And it almost broke my shoulder. And he was like, I'm sorry, I didn't think it'd do that. Mm. You know, he, he knew it would do that. He'd have me grab electric fences. He, you know, it was all about what can I do to hurt her? And in my mind, I was like, why, what did I ever do to be treated like this? Mm-hmm. So nothing, I think my life, nothing, my life became trying to please everybody. I, I never could, I never felt like I could please anybody. I, I was always looking for everybody's appreciation or their, you know, and it just, I felt like my life was 
constantly in chaos. And then I remembered about 10 years ago through dreams that he started offering me to his friends. He started and off, what? wait, wait, let me just understand. He started off doing what to his friends? He started telling his friends that they could have me too. Oh. And I can't exactly remember how much, how many took, took him up on it, but I can remember at least two of them that told him, no, that's not right. That's, that's just not cool. And then later, after he had quit doing it, and when I was in high school, one of his good friends attacked me, threw a blanket over me and got my jeans down. But while he was doing that, I managed to kick him between the legs and I got out of there. I didn't tell anybody. I never told anybody about any of this. It was always, don't tell anybody or I'll, you know, I'll make your life miserable. Well, it was already miserable. But when I was getting ready to move out and I was 18. My parents and I were arguing, which happened a lot. And I just blurted it out. Finally told him, well, he was 21. And my dad said, what do you want us to do now? Wow. And yeah. And my mother said, sometimes these things happen between brothers and sisters. Oh my goodness. And I didn't know what to do at that point, but I was leaving and I thought I need to get out of here because nobody understands me here. And so I left for this for a job for the summer and then went on to college. And I got to, got to college and I was really promiscuous because I thought that's how you showed love. And I'd already lost my virginity. So what difference does it make? I, you know, my self-esteem was in the toilet. Um, I was six foot tall, very thin, kind of had a boy figure and didn't think I was attractive at all. Um, so, you know, if I could give him sex, then at least I had something. And I'd gone to college to play basketball. Then my knees kind of threw me off and I could not play. So I had fun for a couple of years and then it, it was too expensive. You know, my money ran out that I had in the bank and I said, okay, I want to be a mom. That's what I really wanted. My dad wanted me to be a CPA. Well, didn't finish my degree, so, but I did find a husband. And the mom part, my mother was an awesome mom. She taught us everything. My dad taught us everything for a good work ethic. And they, they taught us how to survive in life. You know, we had everything we needed. But I didn't have what I, everything. I was still searching for me. I didn't love myself. I needed that. And I found my first husband. He was 10 years older. I was only 20. And I was looking for a husband and a father for my babies. And so he seemed to be okay with that idea. And so we got married eight months after we met. And 13 months later, I had my first child. And so five years later, I'm pregnant with our third one. And he broke my nose, which 
that had been going on for the whole marriage. Well, that was happening. He tried to push me out of a car before we got married. You know, we were just constantly at each other's throats. And so I left when I was pregnant. And I met my second husband when my baby was six weeks old. And married him six months later. I just needed, I needed, I was always looking for the attention, looking for someone to validate me. And I was nursing a baby. So on top, I was really big and he liked that. So that was what drew him. But also he had two little kids that he needed help with that were the same age as my two older ones. So I had five little kids, five and under. And I went, went and got into a very, very abusive. I mean, he had, my first husband was nothing compared to that one. I was the devil himself. And I went through concussions and choking and, he raped me regularly because mm-hmm. I got tired of it. And after about 10 years, I, I, had kicked, I kicked him out a few times, but I was always calling him back because number one, the two kids by then I was mom to him. And, and he, he would tell me, well, if you don't let me come back, then you'll never see these two kids again. And those were my babies as much as the ones that I gave birth to so I kept doing it but after 12 years we finally filed for divorce and he moved in with his boss's daughter he ended up marrying her but he was still keeping me on a string and I mean I was just I was a mess and it was affecting not just me the kids were living with this alcoholic asshole and it, yeah, it was affecting everybody. And the, his two kids being yanked back and forth didn't help any. Um, and he would, he would call me for rendezvous. We, we've had all kinds of little places and it's really hard to go back to my hometown. So that's where we were living because you have to drive by those shelter belts and places like that where we met. And it's like, Oh, it's just sick. Um, with bad memories. Yeah. Terrible, yeah. Terrible memories. Yeah. Nice. Some of them have been cut down and things like that. But he ended up getting a job at, out of state and his bosses, well, his, his little in-between wife is what I call it, would not go with him. And she already filed for divorce because she, she had found out that we were meeting. And so he says, will you come with me? And I was an idiot. My older two kids had already moved out to their dads. So I packed up my baby and I and put my house for sale and moved down there with him. We got married. It lasted a year. And he hit me again. That was a stipulation for if we got married. I said, if we do, you can't cheat on me and you can't lay a hand on me. And he hit me. So... This time I moved out. Good for Packed you. Everything up, moved out. He Good had nothing. 
Okay. I, I mean, it was my house that I moved down there. He had moved in with her. He had the only thing he had were a couple of things he had rent to own. And so we took everything, but he still stalked me. We moved 30 miles away to the town I worked in. You know, I had to make her switch schools between junior and senior year. His kids got graduated. Um, and they're still my kids, even though we got divorced, you know, for the final time. And they don't see him. Um, but then I reconnected with my high school prom date 26 years later. and. That was 16 years ago. And I I told him I didn't want to get married. I said, I'm done. I, I just can't do this. And he'd take me any way I could get, he could get me. But then we looked at our nine kids because he had four. And none, none of them were married yet. And I told him, I said, That's, neither of us were raised to live together. And one of them, his oldest, was living with her future husband but it just wasn't a good example so we did get married which made him happy (laughs) but I still didn't know he loved me but I still could not honestly say I said it all the time but I couldn't in my mind honestly know what love was Mm -hmm. because I was still just there was so much in me and I'd been beaten down for so long Mm. and Finally, I um I I got help, got there. Well, I was having those dreams. Yeah. The when he was sharing sharing with the friends, I started having dreams. And I, his, his wife had asked me point blank. Who's, this, who, this is your brother? your brother? My brother's wife asked me point blank. And I was honest with her, but she said, well, I already knew, but I needed your validation. I was like, okay. When was this? Said, was this many, many years later? 10 years ago. Oh. Because okay. my dad was still alive, but he was, he was pretty sick. Okay. And so you're 60 now. I think you had mentioned you're 60 years old now. Yeah. So this happened about oh. 10 years ago that your brother's wife. 10, 10 or eight, you know, okay. it, it was a few years before my dad died. And we were, they lived in the town where the hospital was. And so we were, I had stopped by the house and she and I were the only ones there at their house. And she asked me. And so I was honest and, but that triggered the dreams for some reason, just bringing it up. Okay. And so, and at that time I was, Daddy's caretaker, sole caretaker. And so I was driving him everywhere. And when those dreams started coming back, it was like, I, don't, I told my husband, told my daughter, and I said, you know, I, I just can't deal with this. I, I want so bad for something to change. Um, I... I needed something to change. And I went to my primary care doctor and I told him about it. And 
I was already on two antidepressants trying to deal with life. And he said, I can't give you any more of that. But he said, I can recommend some therapists. And I said, please, anything at this point. And he gave me a list. I kind of blindly just grabbed one. And she's been great. It's been two years. Um, I'm my kids, my husband and my older sister have just been awesome. My older sister stepped up like another mom and we are so close. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've talked about how hard it's been not having a sibling group like you see in other families. You lose that. And it's just not, you envy them. You're, you're green with jealousy because you look at these people that have these great relationships with their siblings. And we lost that. We, we just never had it. And then now I finally have it. And we don't know how much longer we have it, you know. And so we are really, really trying to nurture it mm-hmm. and have as much time. That is something that is so hard. You know, you lose that. You don't have great relationships with your kids until they start having kids. And then they start realizing, you know, this isn't as easy as it looked. And that fosters an opening. Um, My youngest and I were so close as her last few years of high school and stuff. We've always been close. Um, We're a lot alike. So that sometimes that triggers some issues, but my son, we have a mom and son relationship, you know, and, but my oldest daughter and I do not get along all the time. We're very different. Um, I, she loves that I'm closer now to babysitter kids, but, and my bonus daughter is seven hours away. But we talk on the phone at least once a month and we text back and forth and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I did something right. You did That's something right. I That's awesome. I love it. My I love are it. Very great. They are oh. thriving personally yes. and professionally. That's right. not an easy feat in the best of circumstances, let alone what you have experienced, because there tends to be an intergenerational transmission of abuse. And the fact that you weren't abusive to your children, that you didn't choose husbands that were sexually abusive to your children, the fact that, you know, you... Then um, I got to jail. What's that? I said I would have killed him or, and then I would have gone to jail. <laughs> yes, I bet. I watched everything very closely. I was intensely, you know, I, I mm-hmm. and I talked to him very young. Mm-hmm. You were probably hyper vigilant. I was open with them. By the time they were in high school, they, they knew what happened to me. What was your understanding, and or what is it now? Do you have an understanding as to why he perpetrated that kind of abuse, sexual abuse, on you? Well, I did send him a letter about twenty years ago, and I sent it to his place of employment because I felt like he needed to get it and it not be opened by somebody else like his wife or, you know, and so he opened it and immediately called me because at the time he was working on 
fire, fires out of state. He was a firefighter on the big fires. And he was getting ready to leave for one of those. And he says, I wanted to get right to you and tell you, and you know, and, and he never apologized. He made an excuse. Mm-hmm. He said it was a learned response from a babysitter. I mean, those were his exact words. And that was all I got. He was wow. crying, which one of his, he can, he can turn it on real easy if he wants to. I've uh-huh. seen him do it. Uh-huh. And then I've, I've seen him just completely snap it off too. Uh-huh. Um, I, I want to be so very, that- very careful to you and the audience in my response, which is, no, he didn't apologize, but in a way he acknowledged, right, what he had done. I'm not oh, excusing yeah. the behavior, but to say that he was a victim as well is really usually the root cause. Because where does children learn this kind of behavior, right? Usually they were a victim of either an adult or another child their age. And that does not mean that it was okay, obviously, for him to do what he did. But I actually have have to say I'm surprised that he acknowledged it at all. However, However, I've spoken to his wife and he told his wife that he learned it by watching my oldest brother do it to my older sister, which is not true. My I've spoken to my older sister. Really? So, yeah. So I, he's he can lie as mm. easy as he breathes. Mm. I've, I've been so I, yeah, because I was really curious. I knew that she had faced him. So I wanted to know what her experience was with him. Right. So. Yeah, that that's why I just don't give it full credit and you okay. know what he told me. Okay. And it was and and nothing changed after I sent the letter 20 years ago. He still treated me like second class citizen every time we got together as a family. I mean, put me down and mm. every, you know, if I had a headache, he and my mm. older brother always oldest brother, you know, they were always like, "Oh, you've got another headache." And it's like, come on, guys, I don't do this on purpose. Mm. You know, it's, <laughs> you can't. Very belittling, very demeaning. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And when I bear my dad, you know, they were, if they did it, oh my yeah. gosh, they wanted all the credit. But I was the one that lived close and did 90% of it. And they would accuse me of stealing out of the account. and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, Hey, it's all right here. If you want to read it, mm-hmm. you know, I've got it all on in the spreadsheet. You're welcome to look at it. I don't have yeah. anything to hide. Yeah. So it was very hard because I just continued to feel like crap and mm-hmm. it really was hard. And I just didn't. Uh, Were you yeah. hoping that that would help you repair? is to get an apology from your brother? Yeah, um, I was working for a pastor at the time. And so it was probably longer, more like 25 years ago. Um, And I needed, I think I I was in the process of the forgiveness part of it. Because I knew after talking to this pastor, I knew that 
I wasn't going to get better until I forgave him. Mm-hmm. And I think that was part of the letter. I'm forgiving you. You know, it's, it's got, I've got to, for my sake, that's got to be done, but that doesn't mean it's, it's over. And that doesn't mean we're, we're close or anything like that. That doesn't mean we even need to talk again, but I need to get this done for me. Forgiveness is for yourself, not for the other person. And, you know, at that time, my parents still didn't want to talk about it. That it was, it was always a non-subject. And so I just didn't, that was why I waited until daddy was gone and we sold his house because we still had to be at, at meetings together for the house sale. And we had to be together, the whole family cleaning it out and all that stuff. So I knew that it just wasn't an option to cut him off until after that was done, which was right out a year, eh, a year later. Um, so it um, just, I want to get to, again, the, the, the culminating factor that allowed you to cut him off finally, right? Two years ago. Um, so tell me a little bit about that. What, what it was almost five years ago. Oh, almost five years ago. Excuse me. So tell me, tell me what created that. Well, after, you know, I, I'd been wanting to, Mm -hmm. and, but as long as daddy was alive and then after he passed, we got the house sold. And I was like, I'd been talking to my husband at the time. As soon as that's done, no more contact. Because he was and, still mistreating you to, to the, oh, to the oh, end. Yeah. In fact, it, it just got worse. I mean, we were cleaning, cleaning at the house one day and we were working on the garage and my older sister and I had been there for two days working on the house. Mm-hmm. I was exhausted. I've got rheumatoid arthritis and I was exhausted, but I went out there. I was trying to, you know, trying to work for a while. Well, then they showed up, came out there and his wife started looking in the trash can that I had been putting stuff in and started pulling stuff out. And I was like, I'm done. And I headed in the house and I just couldn't do anymore. I was, that just put me over the edge. So I went inside and I told my sister, I said, I need to sit down for a while. And she says, sit down. She says, you have been going for three days straight. You need to relax. And so I did. And he came in the house and I'm sitting down and he just glared at me. Well, then later that evening when we were all getting together to eat in the house, he stood up and he says, well, I want to thank everybody for their help out in the garage. And he started naming names and he left mine out and it was, you know, it was so intentional. And I'm just like, you, mm-hmm. I was furious and I'm and that's just a small example of some of the things that he pulled Mm -hmm. and so I yeah I I was done yeah and yeah it's message after message after message that you're not valued right obviously sexual abuse is sending that message as well right so where did you find that value have you found that value absolutely um, I'm still working on it. I feel free. I feel at peace. I don't know whether I was, I'm wife material. Uh, now that I'm 60, you know, it's, I know I have years ahead of me, but you do, you do. Maybe but, I just need to enjoy what I've got. And okay. 
Or That's maybe a- God will plop one in your, in my lap. Who knows? <laughs> um, uh, maybe maybe it's uh, the quality of the relationship that you deserve or may have in the future that will be different because you're different and you're in a different place emotionally. You said earlier that the manifestation or the way that that experience with your brother lived within you for years to come and still does, of course. And you said the way that it shapes you or has its impact on you in all ways. How would you, I don't know if it's summarized or classify, how would you define that? How do you think that it's affected you? I mean, it's clear throughout what you're talking, right? Your relationships to men and finding men who repeat what you already knew, which is abuse and mistreatment in various ways. It's familiar, and in this weird way, it's comfortable, even though obviously it hurt and it was painful physically and emotionally. But that's what we do. That's how we're constructed. We repeat what we know. It was really hard for me to get used to my third husband because he was totally Mm non-combative. And he, I mean, he'd never lay a hand on a woman. Mm -hmm. And he, you know, it took me a, a year or two to get used to that because he would not respond when I was, when, when I yelled at him mm. and I was like, oh, I got to learn to communicate different. Mm. <laughs> so we did, we learned a whole new style of communication mm-hmm. and it worked really well for a long time. Um, so, so how do you think, tell me how, how you think it's still kind of resonating with you or living in you, even though it sounds like you're at a, as you said, a peaceful place, you're, well, it's still there. I, I still think there's a lot of body image. Mm-hmm. Um, I, up until two years ago, my whole adult life, I was overweight. And I, two years ago, I came down with microscopic colitis and lost a hundred pounds in about 16 months. Um, not, not your best way to diet, mm-hmm. but the diet that is required to keep it in under control will keep me at this weight. Mm-hmm. I, I can't imagine ever not eating it. You know, there's, they say some people cheat on it a lot and I'm like, nah, I'm not going that route. I can't, can't live that way again. So I am thin again, like I was in, in high school and college, but there's a lot of loose skin. So that's a little bit, you know, there, there's just body image. I, you look at other people and you're like, why can't I look like that? But I, I don't feel that as much as I used to. I don't care. You know, I'm not looking for somebody to look at me. So I don't care. I feel good. I good. wear what feels good. Good. You know, and just as a point of education, I don't know if you know this or our, our listeners know this, but a lot of people who are sexually abused do put on weights and not intentionally, right? This is unconsciously, but then the body apparently staves off men, right? It's not as attractive. And so in a way, it's protective oh. to not be abused uh, again or anymore or to not be seen as a sexual object. I did it. And, you know, my mom was always heavy. And I just thought I got it from her. And 
I guess I kind of did because she told my older sister that she was also molested by her brother. Mm. Um, she did right before she passed away. She told my, my sister and, you know, there was a lot of times I spent a lot of time with her in the evenings when my dad was driving an activity bus when she was her last year and she would sit there and sometimes I'd catch her just looking at me like she wanted to say something, but she wasn't prepared yet. And I just, you know, I was like, oh, I wish she would have talked to me. Wow. Because of course you now do. I know her statement. Mm. She said, you know, it makes sense now, but I wonder how much she told my dad and whether she ever told it anybody else. You know, um, that's really deep because as I said, right, usually sexual abuse is intergenerational and parents parent usually how they were parented close to it. You didn't, right? You are an exception. But the idea that she was sexually abused by her brother and nobody protected her, she didn't know how to protect herself and she didn't know how to protect you. I often say that like, right, we as human beings have to learn how to self-soothe, but we can't learn how to, for anything, right? When we're emotionally dysregulated, but how do we learn that if we weren't soothed by our caregivers? And it's kind of the same idea. How on earth could she have protected you when she wasn't? given that and mm -hmm. she didn't know even that that was possible think, or didn't have those tools not to I excuse think, again but to understand right. right to understand i think that generation too it just wasn't talked about yeah absolutely and and then, you know as we get later down the road my generation and then this generation it's more open right and i that's why i want to talk about it i want people to talk about it i want it to be open i want that little girl to scream the first time he touches her i as loud as she can because i did we had a babysitter that helped us wonderful little she wasn't very big but she was enough older than our oldest that she'd come over and she'd, she'd handle all five of those kids and but she came from the same situation and my aunt had told me about her and she, it's so I talked to her about it and her dad was real abusive physically too. And she, we would have liked to have gotten her out of that situation, but she was one of those that no, 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 don't say anything. Don't say anything. You know, I'll get in trouble. And because when, she said something to somebody at school, like in fifth or sixth grade, it got to a the counselor or whatever. And when it was brought back to the parents, then she recanted. She was like, no, 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 no. That's not what I said. Because you know? people are really scared of the repercussions that are going to create trouble. Got in yeah. big trouble. Exactly. Right. And there's somewhere within that little girl that knows that you knew if you screamed, oh, yeah. so to speak. I don't even know if you mean in the moment, because part of me wants to kind of recapture what you said or restate it, because I don't want you or anybody else to think that it was your fault because you didn't scream. You were silenced. You were silenced because you were threatened 
and knew that if you did scream or tell somebody thereafter, that the repercussions would be twofold. They would come back at you even worse, potentially, potentially. One, from your brother, who would be extremely angry and take that out on you. And two, from parents who may not believe you because the idea that their other child could be doing such abhorrent acts is unfathomable. It's unfathomable. No parent wants to believe that. Not excusing, understanding, understanding it. Oh, I totally, because I know I've seen enough movies or documentaries and stuff that that's the hardest thing. That's why they don't react because they're both their kids. And it's like you have to choose one over the other. Right. And what you realize is if you keep quiet, you are choosing one over the other and you're just damaging that other one that much more. Absolutely. Absolutely. Both the children need help because obviously for somebody to be perpetrating this, something is seriously wrong in that person's makeup, in their person's psyche. And the victim, the target, also clearly needs help. So I'm hoping that you're using your voice now at 60 years old. One is such a miracle that you're able to articulate this, express this, and want to help others. And two, that other people will find their voice, hopefully before age 60. It's right. it's both a wonderment and wonderful that you did and, and, uh, and a bit of a detriment that it took this long because you've had to suffer silently. And even right. though you shared it, I know that you didn't, you weren't completely silent. You used it as a tool to parent your children and let them know the dangers. But in other ways, you, you suffered silently. You've lived with this your entire life, sought therapy just a short while ago. I'm so glad you did. I'm so glad you're here to tell your story, that you lived to, to, to survive it that you are thriving now, and one, made the choice to seek help, two, made the choice to cut off your brother. And I want to say for others out there that that is an act of self-love. You chose self-preservation. It may have hurt him because maybe in his adult life, he doesn't understand why you cut him off. He doesn't understand why you would, would not want a relationship with him, but he is not changed. He is who he always was. And sometimes it's reparative when that child did certain things during their childhood that they now understand, own, apologize for, and treat their sibling differently. But those who continue the behavior into adulthood don't deserve your relationship. And you're doing it to preserve the ego and the self-esteem that you have left that you are now going to nourish and love and support. So Lori, like all the power to you, continue to thrive. Thank you so much for this service. It's a service that you've done. And I I I wish you really well. I reached somebody out there, so. I have no doubt, no doubt. Thanks again. Sibling abuse is real. It's important. If you're a professional or parent, keep your antenna up. If you're a victim or survivor, you are important. You matter. If you want help, tell a school social worker or mental health professional or your physician. 
To learn more, you can find my published articles on my website at amymyersphd.org. That's amymyersphd.org. A-M-Y-M-E-Y-E-R-S-P-H-D dot O-R-G. Thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. If you liked what you heard, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have a question for me, follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Myers Pod. That's D-R-M-E-Y-E-R-S-P-O-D. And send me a DM for a chance to get your question answered on the podcast. I've got some problems, yeah, I've got some questions. I need some help, point me in any direction. Clinical guidance is what I need to help me become who I'm meant to be. I've been searching for a teacher, another point of view. And I've been asking myself, what would Dr. Myers do?